Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 10 this morning. Solomon has been walking through the fact that we live in a world cursed by sin, don't we? Every aspect of it. And so, because we live in a world cursed by sin, it's frustrating. It's hard to make sense of. You do one thing expecting something to happen, but then the opposite happens. And it's hard to really know what to do, how to respond, and get really frustrating. Solomon's key word is translated in English as vanity, but it's better understood as frustrating or an enigma or polar bear in a snowstorm. But that's hard to say every time. Polar bear in a snowstorm, polar bear in a snowstorm. Everything is a polar bear in a snowstorm. That's too hard to say. And so maybe a frustrating would be easier. So how do people respond to the fact that life is so hard? There's different responses. One very popular way that people respond is they will say something like, boy, you know, you only got one life. You're going to die. Let us eat and drink and be merry for what? Tomorrow we die. Party it up because you only go around once. Do you know anybody who lives that way? Another way that people respond with the depressing, discouraging difficulty of life and they're facing death and life is really hard, they can say, throwing up their hands in frustration, might as well just get it over with. Just take my own life. Be done with it. Some Christians can respond to life's difficulties with, boy, I have such a hard life. Woe is me. Sackcloth and ashes for all their, their days. And they have sad face and they have sad clothes and sad life. Christians. Solomon struggled with the same thing. And we read here in the very beginning, verse 1, he says, I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all. In other words, he's saying, I have put everything I could into understanding what's going on and to make an assessment from a biblical viewpoint. At the top of your sheet there, I put in one sentence uh, this, uh, kind of boil this whole, these 10 verses down to, to one truth that's being said here. When you have a right understanding of life and death, you can truly enjoy and live life. Truly enjoying and live life, that's verses 7 through 10. But in order to do that, you have to have a correct understanding of life and death. So, number one, as we work through this passage, you have to understand your position. What exactly is your position? Well, verse 1, I already read the first part. So that he could declare it all. And then he says this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything that they see of them. And he's saying here are completely powerless. Completely powerless. In the first part, when he says the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God, he's saying here, and this is your first blank, he's saying here, you cannot control life. You cannot control life. The righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. Everyone. 
is subject to God's power and his authority. He is sovereign over all. No one, they might say that they are, but no one is the captain of their fate. He, no one can really determine where they will go and guarantee it's going to happen. I'm going to give you four illustrations from Scripture, four different individuals, and then a statement. The first example is Pharaoh. And the passage to write down is Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. In Exodus 9, 16, God says through Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up. Pharaoh may have thought that he got there because of his family connections, because he was a smart guy, because he was really powerful, but ultimately God, Pharaoh is in his hand. It's a figure of speech talking about God's power. A second person is Cyrus, C-Y-R-U-S, and the passage is Isaiah 44, verse 28. Isaiah 44, verse 28. 150 years before Cyrus was born, God, through Isaiah, said, I will raise up Cyrus, and he will bring my people back out of captivity, back to the land, and he will help rebuild the temple. God named this ruler. A third individual, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that's a long one. If you want to just abbreviate it, N-E-B, Neb. Nebuchadnezzar, the passage is Jeremiah 43.10. Jeremiah 43.10, where God said, I will send and bring Nebuchadnezzar against them. Nebuchadnezzar did that. He was responsible for his actions, but he's always in the hand of God. A fourth is not so much an individual as a people. The Medes, M-E-D-E-S, the Medes. And the passage is Jeremiah 51.11, Jeremiah 51.11. There it says, The Lord has raised up the spirit of the king of the Medes against Babylon, and he would judge them. A passage to write down that kind of boils all this down, puts it all together, is Daniel 4.17. Daniel 4.17 where it says the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets it over the lowest of men. You are not in control of life. The second part of verse 1, people know neither love nor hatred by anything that they see before them. This helps us see you cannot control your future. You cannot control your future. Not even if you are righteous and wise. Are the righteous in God's hands? Praise the Lord. No safer and better place to be. But even you, Christian, righteous because of Christ, even you do not know what awaits you. Whether it's love or hate. You have hopes. You have anticipations. You might have things that you're looking forward to. But hope and anticipation is not certainty. It is not certainty. It's not a guarantee. I hope someday that when I get to be 70, that I will be living and doing and experiencing this. 
but it is not a certainty. It is not a guarantee. A second truth about your position is verses 2 through 6 and that you are condemned to death. Here's the good news for today. Good news for today. You're condemned to death. What's he say here? Verse 2. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. He says here, your first bullet point, regardless of your character, regardless of your character, you will die. Regardless of your character, you will die. He talks about the righteous in verse 2. The good, the clean, he who sacrifices in obedience and trust in the Lord. He who's good, he who takes an oath. They will die. And the converse, the opposite end. The bad people. The wicked, the unclean. He who does not sacrifice. The sinner and he who fears an oath. Every one of them faces the same destiny or if you will, the same fate of death. Solomon is not saying here, it doesn't matter how you live. He's not saying that. He is simply saying everyone dies. And that's true, isn't it? A second thing under this, verses 3 to 6, is that death is a hard fact of life. Death is a hard fact of life. Now, before I walk through this with you, I have a sentence here to help you understand what Solomon is not doing and what Solomon is doing. And this will really help you walk through this. And it will help you be able to answer people who will take a passage out of this, uh, like a statement from this, and they will make that their doctrine. The doctrine of soul sleep, if you've ever heard of that. It's held by many, and Jehovah's Witnesses included. And uh, if you die and you're one of the 144,000, you get to go to be with the Lord, but the rest of you, you don't go to hell. You just kind of soul sleep is the idea there. Um, and they look to a passage like this. They make it walk on all fours. They ignore clear teaching from Scripture like uh, um, Hebrews 9.28. It is appointed unto men once to die, and then what? After this, the judgment. Or Luke 16, when you have Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus died and he went to to heaven. The rich man died and he went to hell and he was in torment. So here's the clarifying statement that'll help you see what Solomon is not doing and what he is doing. So follow as I read and fill in the blanks. Here, Solomon does not teach the doctrine of death. He's not teaching the doctrine of death. Rather, he describes he describes the experience of death from the standpoint of being alive. And that's really going to help you see what Solomon isn't saying and what he is saying here. So from the standpoint of being alive, verse 3, this is an evil and all that's done under the sun. One thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. So from the standpoint of being alive, he says first, death is tragic. Death is tragic. 
the lost do not take death seriously because of their depravity. Madness is in the hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. They're full of evil. They do not see death for what it really is. A second thing uh, from the perspective of living, number two, verse four. Him who's joined to all the living, there is hope. But for a living dog, but uh, I'm sorry, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Number two, the dead are hopeless. Remember, this is from the standpoint of simply being alive, not teaching a doctrine of death, okay? But the dead are hopeless. They don't have anything to live for. Many of you have dogs, don't you? Confess your sin. How many of you have dogs? <laughs> uh, some of my kids have dogs. Uh, we do not. Um, why? Because the Bible never speaks of dogs in a positive light. And so we're more biblical. <laughs> to us, dogs are pets. Our little Fido or whatever your dog's name might be. But in Bible times... Dogs were one of the lowest and most hated animals. They were the scavengers. They ate dead things. But lions, lions were honored. Lions were a picture of leadership, fearlessness, and respect. Solomon says here, if you're the lowest of the low and you're alive, that is better than being the most respected person, but you're dead. Better a, a living dog than a dead lion. The dead don't have hope. They're dead. Number three, verse five. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Number three, the dead are clueless about life. The dead know nothing. Remember, he's describing an experience here. If you look you go to the, the, the cemetery and you speak to the graves. Tell me what's going on in the world right now. This is not very nice to think about, is it? You see the point. From the standpoint of the living, they're clueless about life. They don't know what's going on. And also from verse 5, number 4, they are forgotten. They are forgotten. They have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. They're not getting anything out of this life. Nobody remembers them. And some of you may say, that's not true. I remember. You remember. A loved one who's passed. Sure, I agree with that 100%. But what about Daniel Cooper? And you're all like, I don't know who Daniel Cooper was. He was a great, 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 great grandpa of mine. You don't care about my grandpa. For shame on you people. He's gone and forgotten. And eventually that happens to everyone, doesn't it? From a worldly, this life perspective. Verse 6, first part of verse 6. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Number 5, the dead are dead. The dead are dead. They don't experience any of the feelings of being alive. No hatred, no love, no envy. They're dead. The rest of verse 6, 
Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. The dead, number six, are powerless. They are powerless. They have no impact on this life. They have no impact on this life. Christian, skillfully living life in the sin-cursed world, that means you have to understand your position in this world. Who controls everything? God does. Second, will you die someday? Yes, death is coming. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. Now, right away, we want to throw in a bunch of caveats. Well, Jesus is coming. He could save us from death. Solomon's not teaching a doctrine of death here, is he? He is describing it from the perspective of life. And we need to recognize God is in control of everything, and we will die someday. So with that in view, how should you live, Christian? How should you live? That's verses 7 through 10 then. You should enjoy life and hard work. Enjoy life and hard work. He says in verses 7 through 9, enjoy life as God enables you to. Look at verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Solomon is not saying be a pig and just eat everything for lunch today. He's saying enjoy good food. Enjoy that good food, that good drink. This isn't saying, you know, overdo it. That's inconsistent with being controlled by the Holy Spirit. What is that? What does the scripture say there? And I think it's Galatians 5, 16, 17, 18. Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay. You will only truly, fully enjoy these gifts of God if you're right with God. And Romans 5 1 says, if you're right with God, you have peace with God. And you need to be right with God. Verse 8. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. Why would he say white clothes here? Well, you got to think again in terms of what was the ancient Near East like in that part of the world. It was hot. It was a dry climate. If you wore a black outfit, that's just going to soak in the sun. And what's that going to do to your body temperature? It's going to raise it. And how are you going to feel? Miserable. And so he says, put on white because that will reflect it. It will make your body more comfortable. But it's also something that they would wear in times of joy and happiness. Put on your best clothes so that you're comfortable and joyful. Some Christians think that modesty means being Mr. or Mrs. Dud in your clothing. Solomon says, no, put on your white clothes. Put on the best that you have. He also says here, refresh your, uh, I lost my place here. Let your head lack no oil. Again, in their hot, dry climate, the oil would protect the skin and moisten the scalp and the hair. It's going to help you feel good. And you know what else it's going to do? It's going to make you smell good. This oil would help you feel good and smell good. So Christian, as you gladly submit to God's sovereignty, you recognize you're going to die. You have confidence 
look good, smell good, and be healthy while you're alive. This is what Solomon concludes. Look good, smell good, and be healthy while you're alive. Then he talks about the spouse in verse 9. Live joyfully with a wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity. This gives some instruction on how to choose a a husband or a wife here. Choose one that you love. The wife whom you love. Love Love involves your committing yourself. All that you are, all that you have, all that you'll experience, all that your spouse will experience, you will stick with them. That's what's involved with love. You don't choose a spouse just on the basis of looks. You don't choose a spouse just on the basis of how they might lift you up in the social standing. Or if they have nice, a lot of money or a nice car, or status, or security. Look what he says here. Live joyfully all your life. All your life. The point here, enjoy your life with your spouse. It's sad when you have a husband and a wife, and they have their own separate lives. This doesn't mean that you have to have the same joys, the same loves. Trish never plays basketball with me. (laughs) Never. Does that mean that she's not entering into my joy of that? No. How does she enter into it? She sits on the steps and watches me. And she enjoys it. I'm getting slower. I'm making less shots. I'm not jumping. It's just pure set shots, folks. You enjoy your life with your spouse. The spouse is not the object of the enjoyment. They're not there for your enjoyment. Now, that does, does that mean that you don't enjoy in that way your spouse? No, it doesn't mean that at all. That's part of it. It's a, an effect of it, a benefit, if you will. But your, part, your spouse is your partner in all of life through the good and the challenging times. Your spouse is your partner all of your life. What do we say in the marriage vows? For better or for worse. This is lifelong. This is to be permanent, the marriage here. Brought to an end only by death. Not because we're having a hard time right now and it'd just be better for us to go our separate ways. No. Through all of life. Changes in your life are never a reason for changing your spouse. Never a reason. In fact, changes in life demand a constant spouse, one who's committed to you, one who loves you, 
One who wants to be with you through those times. That's what love is. And this is in contrast to the hookup mentality of our day and age. Momentary pleasure. You know what the Bible says about that? It is a guaranteed death sentence. Proverbs 7.27. It is a guaranteed death sentence. Proverbs 7.27. It says there, it is the way to hell descending to the chambers of death. If you are not married, don't be deceived by the momentary pleasures. It is death. If you are married, stay faithful to your spouse through the good times, yes, through the hard times. How do we apply this, these things that we've seen here in uh, verses uh, 7 through 9? Well, I'll tell you my personal application. Because we've looked at a lot of things, several things here. We've looked at uh, nice clothes and the oil and your spouse and some other things here. Well, I wore my white shirt today. Because it says in verse 8, let your garments always be white. So there was God's will on the color of shirt I was going to wear today. Sundays are hard. Which shade of blue shirt shall I wear? Did I already wear that tie? I don't know. I'll wear my, I don't know. I come away from this passage, I'm going to buy a new tie. You know, I've had the same old ties for the longest time. I need to buy a new tie. What about the oil on your head? I'm not putting oil on my head. Sorry. What would be a contemporary application? You're going to laugh, but it's me, okay? I love my Irish Spring bar soap. There is nothing like a fresh bar of Irish Spring. You take it out, you smell it, and mm, that, it just makes, it just sets my day in a positive path. And you're laughing, but that's me. Maybe you have a favorite perfume, ladies, or favorite uh, cologne. What about the eat your bread with joy in verse 7? Bacon, period. Coffee, that's what we're talking about. What about, how else could we apply? Uh, let your garments always be white. Remember, why did they wear white garments? It was hot. So you know what I'm going to do when I get home? I'm turning on my air conditioning. I'm going to sit in there and I'm going to be thankful for it and I'm going to enjoy it. Live joyfully with the wife you love all the days of your life. I'm going to hug my wife. I'm going to hug my wife. Verse 10, we haven't gotten to yet. I'm going to make some application there where it says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might for there's no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. I need to work hard. But I don't think this is just talking about your career. This is also talking about, as I put it here, throw yourself into good opportunities Tomorrow's Labor Day. I'm going to clean my garage. I'm going to organize it. I'm looking forward to that. And doing it when it's 95 degrees out. Well, maybe not. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to preach Christ. I'm going to pray with the saints that the Lord works. That's what's involved. Let's get into verse 10. Throw yourself into the good opportunities that God gives you whatever your hand finds to do, whatever you can do, 
Invest your energy into it. Why? When you die, you won't be able to. You won't be able to work anymore. No energy. You're dead. No ability because you're dead. No ability to make plans because there's going to come a time when everything comes to a stop. So while you have life, live, work, pour your effort into it. He says the end of verse 10, there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. Once you die, there is no second chance. There's no second chance. Your mental and physical abilities come to a complete stop. It's the end of life. And this is the opposite attitude of many unbelievers who say, why would I, why would I work hard? If I know I'm going to die, why would I work? Let's eat and drink and be merry because we're just going to die. So let's just party it out. Work as little as possible. Work is a blessing. Is it hard? Sure is. Because of the curse. But work is a blessing. Through work, God enables you to put food on the table. Pay the electric bill. Support the cause of Christ. This means that when you have a a God-centered view of work, even when you sweat and get those thorns, that's Genesis 3, even when you sweat and get those thorns, that work is good and it's satisfying because you're doing Colossians 3.17. Give thanks to the Lord. You're working with thanks to him, not as a men-pleaser, but pleasing the Lord and doing in the name of Christ. I'm reminded of the hymn that we sang just before this. Only one life to give. Hymn 638. You have only one life, Christian. Make it count for the Lord in all the little daily activities. Now, some thoughts before I uh, get into the truths for application. And some thoughts are tied to uh, verse 10 here. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Uh, Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do it. You need wisdom here. Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do it. There's so many different things that you can do in our day and age. You have to make wise decisions as a Christian. Uh, You're going to answer to Christ for how you've lived your life. At a minimum, I would identify three areas of absolute essential for your life, Christian. The first is your family. The second is your work or career. The third is your church. Your family, your work, and your church. Now, I didn't want to put those one, two, three, because what's the conclusion by my putting them one, two, three? Family, work, church. What's the conclusion you can make from that? Well, family's most important, Work is second most important. Church is third most important. That's not what I'm intending to say. Instead of thinking it this way, we have to recognize, has God given you a family? Has God given you work? Has God given you your church? Yes, he has given you all three of these. And you have a responsibility to fulfill your roles and responsibilities in each of these areas. It's not one's more important than the other. They're all three important. 
That means you can't do everything that you could do. You need wisdom to know what you should do. I must do this. I must do this. And I must do this. If I have more time, then I can throw in some other things there. But I need to make sure that I am fulfilling my God-given responsibilities in these areas. If you devote resources to other things at the expense of those three, you've got wrong priorities. And that's contrary to what Solomon says here. So some truths for application. Number one, because death is certain, you must prepare for it. Death is tragic. It is sad. It is unavoidable. When a godly believer passes away, do we cry or do we laugh? Well, it depends. (laughs) We're going to cry, aren't we? But we're going to also remember the fun times, the silly things that were said and done. But there's going to be some sadness because we're going to miss them. And that's the tragedy aspect of it. And that's an effect of sin. And because death will happen, you must prepare for it. First and foremost, spiritually. Once you die, you are dead. You must trust in Jesus Christ. He who is the life, who is the way, who is the truth. You must trust in him. When you trust in him, you will have eternal life. I would also say here, another way you need to be prepared for it is you need, depending on where you're at in your family, um, your role and responsibility and all that, but especially for the husbands and fathers, you need to financially prepare uh, for your death. For your family who will survive you. You have to prepare for it. Number two, Life is good. I hesitated to do that because, boy, is that a slogan today, isn't it? Life is good. Uh, I like to watch gun videos. I don't have many guns, but it's just kind of fun to watch. And there's one guy in particular I like to watch, and that's his kind of his motto. Life is good. And he shoots all kinds of guns. Life is good. <laughs> that's what he does. I'm sure there's cross-stitchers who say, life is good. And they cross-stitch and things like that. And, Yeah, that's not my idea. Um, Is it good to be alive? It is good to be alive. Are there hard things? Yep, I got to take shots every day for diabetes. Isn't that some fun? Y'all want to take a shot? I got some spare syringes if anybody wants to know. I don't either. I'd rather not, but I want to live. Life is good. Now, as Christians, we know. As Christians, we know that after death, where will we be? Who will we be with as Christians? We're going to be with the Lord. We are going to be with the Lord. And yet, do you remember what Paul said in Philippians 1.21 that we're going to start working through this week in your daily devotional? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's not one or the other. You're alive, so live. 
you will die. So be prepared. Even though we know that we'll be with Christ, what do you instinctively prefer, life or death? All in favor of life? 100%. Okay. My sermon title was this. Don't be saddish, have a radish. This is from a Pax the Pirate CD. My kids grew up, except for, I don't know, did you listen to them too? Okay, Lydia's completely ignorant. She has no idea Patch the Pirate because once she came along, the kids were getting older and Patch the Pirate wasn't cool anymore. It wasn't this, we don't want to listen to that. That was a line from Patch the Pirate. Um, So if you're in Christ, you can, and I would say should, enjoy the good things in life that God provides. And I think one of the good things in life that God provides is radishes. Now, you might hate them, and that's okay. I don't like beets and parsnips. But some of you like beets and parsnips. That's okay. Did you bring any radishes today? Oh, boy, they're mine. They have my name on them. Don't take them. I'm joking. Don't go through life, uh, Mr. Sourpuss. You know, there's nothing spiritual about being that way. Nothing spiritual about it. Um, Think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. Do you think Adam and Eve just kind of walked through the Garden of, oh man, look where we got stuck. I got to live with her. I got to live with you. You know, do you think they responded that way? No. They loved that fruit. They ate it. They enjoyed it. They loved each other. I asked some of you when, when you came in today, do you remember that question I asked some of you? You kind of probably were wondering, why is he asking me this? I asked you, some of you, what's the funnest thing you like to do? Got a bunch of different answers. Some like to take a piece of steel or fiberglass and hit little white balls everywhere. Some like to take a book and just read. There we go. Some like to shoot guns. Some like to cross-stitch. What do you enjoy? God gives you that free time to do it, and you're fulfilling your other responsibilities? Do it. Within the character of Christ, and within the laws of Christ, okay? We have to have that right response. Think about the testimony this provides to the lost. What kind of testimony does it say to the lost as a Christian when when you're... Mr. Sourpuss Saint, you know life is bad, but I know Jesus. What kind of testimony does that give? But if your testimony is the fruits of the spirit of love and joy and peace, and people know you're going through a hard time and they say, how can you be happy through this time? And you say, yeah, I know it's hard, but the Lord blessed me with a great family and I know the Lord Jesus Christ and What a testimony that provides to the lost. Number three, work is a good thing. Work is a good thing. God created work, Genesis chapter two, before sin entered the world. Yes, sin affects it, but with God's help, you can enjoy it. Even though there's sweat and thorns and computer problems and flat tires and all kinds of those things. Remember Colossians 3.17 in your work. Do it with thankfulness, with Jesus Christ's name 
being attached to what you do. That's a good help in the quality of work. Jesus Christ's name is being attached to the work that you do. There's going to come a day when you will not have the physical strength, uh, mental ability to do the work that you're doing now. And I think for most cases, you're going to miss, you're going to look back on those days and you might miss some of those times, even if there was sweat and if there was challenges, because you can't do them now. Number four, lastly, wisely prioritize your life. You need, you need to learn to say no to unimportant things so that you can say yes to those essential and important things. That calls for wisdom. You might need to get some advice from a, a, a good Christian uh, who can help you along the lines, who's in the same situation as you are, um, who's lived what you've lived. I think of Titus 2, where it talks about the older women teach the younger women. Why? Because they've lived through it. They know Christ. They've, they've learned the things to do and the things to avoid. That applies to so many different other experiences of life. Don't be saddish. Have a radish. Let's pray.